what it said to me was that I could put together 100 words that actually shared with other human beings something that resonated among us as human beings. This is Heart of the Story, and I'm Nadine Kenny Johnstone. I'm a writer and a writing coach who helps women develop and publish their memoirs and essays. But most importantly, I'm a human who's always trying to figure out what my soul is saying. Each week, I'll share stories and tips of healing, hope, and following my heart so that you'll feel inspired to follow yours. Hi, friends. I have got an incredible conversation for you today. And before we dive in, I wanted to extend a really great opportunity to try out Writer Workout for free. So many of you have been messaging me because you've been hearing about the wonders of Writer Workout from the guests on this podcast who have gotten published all over in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Brevity, Longreads, you name it, and you want in on the magic. (laughs) So if this is you and you want to try out Writer Workout for free, you can join us on Monday, February 13th at noon central for a free Writer Workout class. And in order to join, all you have to do is email me on my website, nadinekennyjohnstone.com, and I'll send you the Zoom link. And Writer Workout is a great community of women writers from all over the world, all different genres. We come together every Monday at noon central, and I give prompts and craft talks, and then we have writing time together, and then there's optional sharing at the end. And it is not just a writing community for jumpstarting your writing for the week. It is a community that sees each other through highs and lows of life, who support each other, who promote each other, who share contacts and resources with each other. I mean, this group, we're almost three years old and have been just growing exponentially. And it's made up of the kindest, most wonderful, talented writers. And we'd love for you to join us. So February 13th, Writer Workout for free. Contact me through my website, nadinekennyjohnstone.com. Just to let you know, next week I'll be announcing some really, really, really big book news. So you'll definitely want to tune in. And before we get ahead of ourselves, though, we've got a wonderful conversation with the talented New York Times published writer, Barbara Phillips. Barbara is part of our Writer Workout community. She is an amazing soul. She is a writer. She is what she calls a social social justice feminist activist, which I absolutely love that title. She was also a law professor, a civil rights lawyer. She has served on many, many boards. Essentially, she has done amazing work in the world. And she's gotten published in the New York Times too, just a little aside. And I wanted to have her on the show because one, she is completely inspiring, but two, she is a generous, generous spirit. She is someone, when I think of a 
connector of women. I think of Barbara. Barbara has, without a doubt, brought so many women in our community together. She always recommends and suggests resources to other people. She's a wonderful connector of people. So I couldn't think of anyone better to have on the show. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you, Nadine. And it's great to be with you. Oh, I'm so excited about this conversation. First, maybe tell us where you are in the world and where you split your time. We'd love to hear about that. All right. I live um, most of the year in Oxford, Mississippi. And the South is a very special place to me. Uh, My family, both my parents' families are from Virginia. We siblings were all born in Virginia, but my family moved to Memphis when I was about five years old. So I'm a Southern Black woman, and that's very meaningful to me. And when summer arrives in the South, I escape to Martha's Vineyard, to Oak Bluffs. Mm. And one of the most attractive things about Oak Bluffs is that it sits in the Gulf Stream, so that in the summer, it's very much like springtime in the South. Mm-hmm. And that's something I really love about it. And it's sense of community. Mm. Also very Southern. Yeah. And as a writer, how do you think place influences your work, all of your work, not just your writing work? Place has a very big influence in my person, in, in who I am and how I see the world. In fact, I just had a piece accepted by Southern Cultures, a Mm -hmm. magazine published by the University of North Carolina. And it's about my mother's family and our family farm in Virginia. And and the title of it is We Are Virginians. Mm. So place is very important in just how I think about myself and how I see the world and how I experience it, how I filter the world that I live in. Yes. And I think of you as a writer, but you have done many, many things. So when did you get into writing and how has your writing life evolved? I wrote lots of academic articles, lots of articles for law reviews, journals and anthologies about philanthropy, but I never engaged in creative writing until just a few years ago. And it began as a way of coping with the death of my husband, Bob Howard, who was diagnosed late in life with Huntington's disease. And so it was a terrible, a, a terrible diagnosis. It's, it's, there's no cure for it. So part of my working through grief was to start writing. And uh, I began with a residence in Martha's Vineyard in Oak Bluffs, a place called Renaissance House, organized by a woman named Abigail McGrath. And uh, I was in the company of, I think, five other women writers. And that's how I, I began writing. I didn't think of myself as a writer until maybe... A year ago, Nadine, after being in your writer workout for about a year, and then just this year, 
Abigail McGrath referred to me in something she published in the Martha's Vineyard newspaper. She referred to me as an Oak Bluffs writer. And that was the first time I'd seen myself referred to in print as a writer. And it was absolutely thrilling. And I, of course, immediately had to tell her how excited I was (laughs) to be labeled. Now, that's how I started. And it was my friend, Madeline Murphy Rabb, who said, well, Barbara, you might enjoy Nadine Johnstone's writer workout. And wow, was that a generous bit of information because with you, I found a whole community of women writers. And that's just been kind of the fuel for me ever since. Mm, So many good things. So first, what do you think it is about writing that helps us get through grief? Because I I have turned to it in grief um, and so many people do. Why do you think it helps It helps me put my feelings on the page and to write until the words actually express the feeling that I have inside. I find that there's some kind of healing in that. There's some sort of embracing the grief Um, instead of running away from it, instead of pushing it down but to express it, something about doing that makes me feel um, more human. Mm. And I I like that. Mm. I like that feeling of being in the grips of very human emotions. Mm. Yeah. Yes. I feel like when we write, we're acknowledging, we're seeing ourselves. And then when we express it, It doesn't have to live solely in this trapped compartment of our body. It can move through us in a way, not that we are rid of grief, but we process in a way that it doesn't feel like you're trying to trap it all in a container and never look at it again. Oh, I think that description really resonates with me. And I have been keeping a journal since ninth grade. I didn't write in it absolutely every day, but from ninth grade until now, I have journals that cover most years of my life. And I usually pick up a few and read them around New Year's Eve Mm. or around my birthday. And in retrospect, I find myself meeting a Barbara that I don't know anymore. Mm. But I find that what she did was put on the page her feelings. Mm. And some of that is really hilarious because I've, I've, I've met, you know, um, high school Barbara, who was, I think, the most self-centered teenager in the United States of America. And so it's a wonderful and this thing of putting feelings on the on the page just just really has been meaningful to me and i started this as a as i said in ninth grade without all of that understanding of what it meant to me mm-hmm. but uh now i i can see that that it was very important for me and i remember we had a talk nadine early on when i first came to write a workout about what i 
wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I remember telling you I had no interest at all in publishing, <laughs> that all I wanted to do was become a better writer, to be able to actually ha- see on the page the feelings that I had inside. And what I've learned working with you and in the company of the other women writers is that, gee, submission to be published is a big inspiration. It's a big motivator to actually do that work of getting better at place at putting feelings on the page and getting at the story that I'm really holding inside. Mm. It is. I find that because writing can be solitary, because it could be a work of great endurance, that having these wins along the way of seeing your work in print really does boost the motivation and the confidence. (laughs) It, It really does. When I had that very short piece of 100 words accepted as a tiny love story, I mean, you would have thought I got the Nobel Prize in literature. It was just so. Well, it is close to get a byline in the New York York Times is pretty close. It was exciting. And, And what it said to me was that I could put together 100 words that actually shared with other human beings something that resonated among us as human beings. And and so that it was that meaning of it that was so wonderful. Oh my gosh. So I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that piece. And if you're so willing, you can read. So the piece is called Hello, Old Friend. And it was published last year in the New York Times in the tiny love story section, as you talked about. Walk us through from seed of an idea to publication. What did that look like? Well, that piece is about the death of of my husband, Bob, in 2013. And I actually wrote the the heart of it in my journal Mm -hmm. sometime after he passed away in March of 2013. So that summer, I wrote a few of those words, that feeling, captured something of that feeling in my journal. And... um, I kept coming back to it. I kept coming back to it. And then as a result of being in writer workout, I was finally able to get these 100 words to express how this journey of grief over his death. And I finally got that 100 words to express these feelings in 2021. Wow. So it took a while. Mm-hmm. And the piece describes uh, this very deep grief upon his death, but also shares how that grief became not painful, but that grief became, as I say in the piece, this, this old friend who mm-hmm. sits with me and says, let's, um, let's share memories of Bob. Mm-hmm. The piece reflects this journey from the very crushing grief that immediately followed his death and, and lasted for many years. And by many years, I mean that I really couldn't fully express 
my journey through the immediate grief. And then it's how my feelings about his death changed over time. But I wasn't able to finish that piece until 2021. And for me, it captures mm -hmm. this embrace of grief, not as something that's painful and debilitating, but grief becomes this gift of a, an old friend who brings me a martini and says, um, let's share memories of Bob. Mm. And that's a very warm, loving feeling. And it's not painful anymore. Mm. And how do you feel about reading it? I would love to read it. Okay. So this was in the New York Times tiny love story. Hello, old friend. Grief was that relative I heard stories about. I knew her in the way I knew Uncle Gerald, someone I never met but learned so much about. When my husband died, and there grief was, shaking my hand, I offered her the guest bedroom, scrambling to make it comfortable, but not too comfortable, because I didn't want her to stay long. Instead of the guest bedroom, she marched right into my bedroom and dropped her heavy bags. Years later, she's still with me, now an old friend, someone to sip martinis with and remember. Oh, it's beautiful. I love this piece. I do too. I love, love, love. I do too. So you wrote the piece and did you know about the opening for submissions? How, how did you go about submitting? I was just writing the piece beginning back in 2013, just, you know, for myself, my own little, you know, expression, getting things out of my insides. And it was through a writer workout mm. that I learned about submitting something to Tiny Love Story. And so there it was. Because we do the submission fest as part of Writer Workout, yeah. um, I began learning about, you know, how to submit something. And I just thought, I really like this piece. You know, eventually, I really, really liked it. I thought it expressed what had happened to grief mm -hmm. in the years following my husband's death. What had happened with me inside about grief. So because of Writer Workout, I knew there might be a place for it somewhere. And when you sent it off, was it a while? How did you hear back? Tell us about that. You know, I don't remember how long it took to get a response. Um, I think it must have been several months. But there in my email inbox was something from the New York Times that I just held my breath, you know, as I clicked on the email and and it was an email from Mia Lee one of the two editors of the love story series and you know she turned out to be this charming very pleasant person she wasn't scary at all mm -hmm. and it was just it was a um just a wonderful experience mm -hmm. and it was so it meant a lot to me to be able to share that in our writer workout session the Monday after I got 
accepted because you know there there was a whole community of women to say oh that's wonderful a hundred words you got a hundred words published that's great it's so amazing (laughs) and you mentioned the word community a lot and you have a writing partner who's in our community Ruth Odell um what does community mean to you and why do you think it's so important for writers to have it Mm, I think community is important for all of us. I mean, one of the reasons that I moved back to the South after my husband died to this tiny town is that community is very important to me. And I still had a very strong community of people here in Oxford from the time that I taught at the law school. And similarly, finding a community in writer workout There's a lot of solitude in being a writer, but I just can't live in the world as a solitary person. And so it was very important to me to find a community of writers. And Madeline assured me that that's what I would find. Mm -hmm. And I did. And uh, Ruth O'Dell is a very good friend of mine here in Oxford. And and we both value community in our lives in general. Mm -hmm. And we both found it to be very helpful to be in writer workout. And that, a part of that is that Ruth and I are now writing partners, you know, here in town. And we have now set up a structure where we will meet weekly and share our writing and help each other. So this community has given structure to my ambitions to become a better writer. Mm, Yes, we need accountability. We need support. When I was revising my memoir six, seven years ago, I was living in Chicago and I just happened to meet this woman at Starbucks because I would go there every day and she would go there every day. And I noticed that while everybody else was on their phones or on social media, she and I were the only ones working on Word documents. And I thought, (laughs) I wonder if she's a writer. And shout out to Steph Coleman. I met this amazing woman, Steph, and she was just uh, and is such a dedicated writer. And she would just plug along every day working on her many novels. And so side by side, every time I was at Starbucks, two, three times a week, we would chat for about 10 minutes and then we would stand next to each other at a high top table, put in our headphones Uh and then just type. And just knowing that she was typing made me not check my email, not check anything else, not look at work. It's like jogging alongside someone or or running a race with someone. It just is such a support and motivator. So I'm so glad that you and Ruth are doing that. Yeah. And I found that an atmosphere of uh, very conducive to writing when I was at Mesa Refuge, which is a writer residency. I was there with two other women writers, and I was incredibly productive. I think it's because the house we were in was infused with our writer energy. Mm. And I think that somehow spurred us, the three of us, to gather for dinner and maybe see each other for coffee in the morning call each other maybe to go for a walk in the afternoon but we I just found it to be an incredibly productive time that the three of us 
I mean, we were just busy bees independently working on our writing. It really is so important. You know, anyone who's listened to five minutes of me talk knows how important I think it is for women to take time for their writing and their creativity and retreat and residency is certainly such a powerful way to do that. And you have attended the residency on Martha's Vineyard, Mesa Refuge in California. You came to my Door County retreat. I'm going to see you in February in Florida at our next yeah. retreat. And so why do you think it's important and different to write outside the home with other people? What does that do for you? To write Outside of home, where there are all of these uh, distractions, there are all these, you know, I'm looking right now at a pile <laughs> of books on my office floor, piles of boxes of photographs, and I have sworn to myself that I'm going to organize them before the end of the year. And they're just yelling at me right now. They're just yelling at me because it's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, and, and, but they're yelling at me. So, you know, there's there's that in the house. And I found since I did that residency on the vineyard back in 2013 was when I came to your retreat at Indoor County. Mm. And I learned from that one, just to set aside expectations. And in fact, nothing that I wrote there turned into anything for mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. But what I then wrote after, mm -hmm. suddenly something came to me a month after yes. being on that retreat that just was wonderful. And, and you know, I think that's where the Virginian piece, We Are Virginians, came from. So I've learned that there's something that goes on sort of subconsciously yeah. in these spaces of retreat, where one is outside of the home and intentional about writing. And so there's an opening up in some way. And it may not happen during the days of the retreat, mm -hmm. but something shifts and changes along the way. Mm, certainly, there's definitely an internal shift. And I'm so glad you talked about releasing expectations, because oftentimes writers go to these retreats or residencies and, and they have such a long list of, okay, I finally have a week to myself or even two weeks to myself. I am going to write an entire book or write a chapter. <laughs> and, and it just puts so much pressure that they arrive and they're blocked and they're mad and they're ashamed and they're resentful or what have you, where if you arrive with just the thought that I'm going to let the place and the people absorb into me and just see what happens. It's incredible what can evolve from there after days, weeks, months, years after the experience itself. And, and I find that it's not just about whatever writing is produced there or afterwards, but it's about the people you meet. It's about how the place really impacts impacts or influences you and um, just the experience of devoting time to yourself and your craft. It's a way of saying to the world, this is important to me and it matters and it's worthy of time. That's a stamp that's really important to show the world. Yeah. And uh, for me, that 
in itself causes a shift. Mm -hmm. I went to Mesa Refuge intending to write a piece that is related to the law. And uh, it was going to be a particular critique. And when I approached the house, there's a sign over the door that says, imagine. Mm. And I didn't realize it at the time, but that sign changed what I wrote about. Instead of it being a critique of how we had failed as civil rights lawyers of the 60s and 70s. I I mean, the sign just hit me. And I I said, who the hell wants to read that? Let's imagine what we want civil rights laws and policies to be Mm. now and in the future. And that completely changed what I wrote. And it's going to be published in an anthology of essays by the University Press of Florida. Mm. Oh my gosh, I love that. And that's what I want to ask you about. So it's a perfect segue. What did you end up writing about when you think about Imagine? What did you end up penning? Ah, that became the first word in the title of the piece. Mm. And the title of it is Imagine and Create the Third Reconstruction. Oh, my God. And the idea is that we had the first reconstruction after the Civil War to recreate, refound our country. And we amended our Constitution. So we our foundational document became new after the Civil War. So that was the first reconstruction. But then there was a severe backlash against that. Reconstruction only lasted for 10 years. And then we went into a period of Jim Crow laws, racial segregation that lasted for decades. You know, it really lasted well into the 60s and 70s. The demise, you know, that we began to reconstruct our country again with the decision of Brown versus Board of Education, which ended racial segregation in public schools. So that's the second reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And my analysis is that that reconstruction lasted for a few years and again, there was backlash. And so now we need to create, recreate our country and recommit to the values of our constitution with the third reconstruction. So that's what it's about. Hmm. So we can all live in the world we want to live in. Yeah. And as an activist, what does that look like for you when you're out in the world? What do you hope for people to know or do? I went from being a civil rights lawyer, this is a long way to answer that, from being a civil rights lawyer grounded in the U.S. Constitution and our laws of civil rights, to being very much engaged with human rights, the U.N. Declaration of uh, Human Rights, when I became a program officer for women's rights and gender equity at the Ford Foundation. And so I think the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is our guide star in creating the world that we want to live in, where we recognize that the foundational value is recognizing the dignity 
of every person. Mm -hmm. If we started with recognizing the dignity, the inherent dignity of every person, not dignity that they earn, not dignity that they deserve, but just their inherent dignity as a human being. If we started there, we would have policies, we would have laws, we would have practices, we would have a culture that actually does that, that respects the dignity of every person and helps every person reach their full potential. What a wonderful world. Don't we all want that? Oh my gosh, what a wonderful world. And so you've written about this in your last piece that's going to be published, but how else does your activism work and your role as a feminist and a social justice activist, how how does that play into your writing? Well, I like to uh, think about a young person's wisdom. His name is Ryan Wong, and he wrote this very interesting book. Oh my God. The title of his book, it was just published this year, Which Side Are You On? Mm. And Ryan Wong is an Asian American, and he comes from a very activist family. His, His parents were phenomenal and are phenomenal activist in the social justice world around Asian American issues, all social justice issues. He, in the process of writing his novel, he has also been a many decades practitioner of Buddhism. And he reflects on something that Thich Nhat Hanh said about what we what our obligation is as writers or as creatives, as artists. And our obligation is to offer to the world, not just our suffering for validation and acknowledgement, but we are to offer to the world our suffering and a reflection and understanding of it that lifts all of us and does not leave us destroyed Mm. and burdened by our suffering, but leads us to liberation and freedom. Mm. And so I feel very much as he put that into words, that as a writer, I want to share my own spiritual way of being in the world. And um, so that's a bit rambling, I think. No, I love that. I love that. And when you think about your spiritual way of being in the world, what is that? What, What do you consider that? Well, it's a spirituality that grows out of my being raised in the Episcopal Church, wandered away from it for many, many years, and have returned. I've I've also been a student of Buddhism and Thich Nhat Hanh, as many of us are. My way of being in the world, I think, emulates my mother's way of being in the world, which was to see 
not in a Pollyanna sort of way, all that is good and wonderful in the world, but to be in the world with a sense of hope, with a sense of seeing all that is generous, kind, miraculous, magic about the world, while also holding at the same time the paradox of of cruelty and injustice and the terrible ways in which we as human beings treat each other and the earth and the world. I mean, look at our climate, what we've done to the world that we live in. But I, I have found that in my life, I want to hold an appreciation for both of those things mm. and to believe that human beings can see each other and value each other. I think what's incredible is that you were talking about the way that you want to be in the world. And I can say you certainly are, you know, when I, <laughs> when I think of you, I think of someone who sees the good and the magic and also acknowledges the suffering and the hardship, but your presence is such a welcoming, generous way of interacting with other people, even on Zoom. So it's so great to kind of see the origin of that, that that's the way your mother looked at the world too. Yeah, that, that means a lot to me that you say that. And, you know, I really came to um, appreciate coming to this way of being in the world because I wasn't always. I, as a young person, I knew everything. I needed to be right. <laughs> about everything. And I was right about everything. And just one of the things I value most now is that I don't need to be right about things. In fact, I know that we as human beings will never have any certainty about being right. And we're in a lot of trouble. I mean, a lot of trouble in the world comes when people decide that they're absolutely right. So I've I've been happy uh, to let that go <laughs> and to experience the world with a greater sense of wonder mm. and a lot less judgment. Mm. And that feels completely spot on from the way that you operate in the world. And there's, we could talk for many, many hours. There are so many things I want to ask, but you know, keeping time in mind, I just wanted to, at the end here, kind of do a little bit of like quick questions that you don't okay. have to think too much about um, <laughs> that really involve story. So when I ask these questions, it's just a way of you sharing stories, more stories, and just seeing what comes off the top of your head. So you can answer them any way you would like. So the first okay. one is, what's a favorite memory from childhood? Oh, Christmas. Mm. My mother absolutely loved Christmas. And so it was a very big deal in our household. She decorated every room, including the bathrooms. <laughs> I mean, it was, she wished we lived in Memphis, Tennessee, and every year, she expressed as 
if it could actually happen. She wished for snow on Christmas Day. Um, we had these rituals of cookies and eggnog after Christmas Eve service at church. And then in the morning, my daddy made Bloody Marys. It's the only time he ever lifted a finger. Uh, <laughs> uh, so Christmas with my, I have I had have uh, two sisters and a brother and Christmas was was just a magical time, oh. even as we were adults. Mm. Santa still brought us gifts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> From a woman who still does Easter egg hunts with her sister. I understand <laughs> yeah, yeah. this. <laughs> yes. Um, what is one of the most adventurous things you've ever done? Oh, I became a single mother at age 40. Mm, tell us more about that. Well, until I was 35, I knew for a fact that I did not want to have children. Mm -hmm. And I, in fact, it, did not like children as a group. <laughs> uh, when my, I didn't, I didn't think they, you know, why are they allowed on airplanes? Uh, I was one of those people. My high school girlfriends all had children in their 20s. I could not understand why they needed to talk about these people all the time. <laughs> if I saw, this is literally true, if there were, you know, I lived in San Francisco, and so there would be people out and about with, you know, classes of, you know, little preschool kids or kindergartners. I would cross the street rather than than walk. And when I turned 35, I just became a Murphy Brown cliche. I started having this inkling. I thought I was having a midlife crisis of wanting to have a, a child. And this just kept growing and at age 40 that's the that's what happened and uh I consider it the greatest greatest adventure of my life and uh my son is someone who about whom his friends say Charles has a good heart mm. and there isn't anything better anyone can say to me about him but he also happens to be incredibly handsome and smart and a fantastic father and just a rock for for me but he has a good heart wow I love that I love that yeah. one more question what is a really important lesson you've learned mm. I have learned to give up uh control, to give up a sense of control, to give up certainty. And I have found that it is a much more magical way to live. It opens all sorts of possibilities. It makes people way more interesting to me than they used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, when I thought that I could look at a person or talk with someone for five or 10 minutes and think that I knew all about them. So the greatest lesson for me has been to learn to give up that sense of control and certainty and to approach life with much more wonder. 
Mm-hmm. And curiosity. Yeah, wonder and magic has come up quite a bit in the conversation. And I, I love it. What a way to live with wonder and, and magic at the forefront. Mm-hmm. And as you think about any of the writers listening to them, what wisdom would you share for an emerging writer? Um, your your new wish to the writing world <laughs> and look at all you've done already. What advice would you give? I keep taped to my computer this quote from Octavia Butler. And it says, you don't start out writing good stuff. You start out writing crap and thinking it's good stuff. And then gradually you get better at it. That's why I say one of the most valuable traits is persistence. It's just so easy to give up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I keep that right on my computer. Although I write first drafts in longhand, then I put them in my computer. But I always have this quote right here oh. to help me out. Yes, yes, yes. I am a fellow longhand writer in graduate school. Believe it or not, um, they did not allow computers in the classroom in my graduate program, which seemed archaic. I think it's wonderful. Uh, It's so great. I now definitely realize the value of that, that everything we wrote first, we wrote in our journals longhand, and it just changes the entire process. Yes. Wasn't that... Just such a fabulous conversation. I love how Barbara talks about writing through grief, about the importance of community, the necessity for women to take retreat, and being such a proponent for change. I absolutely loved talking to Barbara so much so that when she shared with me some of her published writing beyond the New York Times article, I was so blown away by her writing that I wanted to talk even more with her. And so I did something that I rarely ever do, which is that I recorded some bonus content with her of her reading a couple of her pieces out loud and talking about the inspiration behind them, the story behind the essays. And it just turned out to be such wonderful food for thought for writers and so inspiring to hear her reading her powerful stories aloud. So if you loved the conversation and you want to hear even more from Barbara, then tune in to this bonus content that she shares. And don't forget that you can join us in Writer Workout. Barbara is part of Writer Workout, as you just heard. You can join us for free. Try it out on Monday, February 13th at noon central by contacting me through my website, and I'll send you the link. All right, here we go. So as part of this like bonus part of the episode, you are going to share a little bit. And the first one is from Herstory and is called The Unfinished Agenda. And before you dive into that, can you just tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind this piece? In uh, 1994, I became the first black woman tenure-track law professor at the University of Mississippi and moved from San Francisco to the town of Oxford. 
part of the move was because my parents live in Memphis and I had realized on a trip home about a year before that they were actually aging. They were in their seventies. And among my siblings, I was the one who had the ability to you know, pack up and move closer to them. So that was a big part of the motivation to accept the position at the University of Mississippi. But there was also another motivating factor feeling. And I talk about that in this little essay. And about, um, you know, people often have asked me, what was it like? And that was difficult to answer at a cocktail party. And Mm. I wanted to answer that question in a way that was true to the experience. And that's also what this piece is about. Mm, I love it. Yeah, let's hear it. All right. He made his way around the seminar table to stand at the podium and present the paper reflecting his semester-long wrestling match with challenges to everything he had been raised to accept without questioning. He is a young white man, a law student, who looked as if plucked from Hollywood central casting for a crowd scene of stereotypic bubbles, attending a rally of the Ku Klux Klan, We are around a rectangle arrangement of tables in a law school seminar with the title, Race, Gender, and the Law, created by the first African-American woman faculty member at this flagship university in the heart of Dixie, me. When he stepped through the door on the first day of class, one look told me to invite him to sit down right next to me. With his three other white and four black third-year classmates, I have shared a complicated and occasionally exhilarating journey through white supremacy and patriarchy. He is about to reveal the terrain over which he has traveled and the destination to which he has arrived. I fixed my face and took what I hoped were inconspicuous deep breaths. I tell most people that I accepted the associate professor faculty position at this law school because it's only 75 miles away from my aging parents. That's enough of the why to make sense to acquaintances. The rest of the why is shared over a glass of bourbon or two with friends and involves the intimate biography of a 45 years old black woman, granddaughter of a proud, land-owning, NAACP-founding Black man in Appalachia, raised in the segregated South by parents who showed their children we were fully human. I came to this state 23 years before, first as a community organizer in the tradition of the civil rights movement. For two years, I was transformed by local people who lived their belief that they could change their world. Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, known as an icon of the Mississippi movement, also was very clear with me and the world that cared to know that she also fought for women's liberation, to use her own words. Those years developed my commitment to become a civil rights lawyer. I returned 16 years ago for a staff attorney position with a civil rights legal organization. After several years, I moved on to become partner in a San Francisco law firm. Accepting this particular faculty position meant not only being near my parents, but fulfilling some piece of my responsibility for the unfinished agenda of the Mississippi movement at this university with buildings built by enslaved people 
whose descendants were among my students and still denied their full humanity by every institution of the state, including this university. I lived on Faculty Row, a little road on campus of 10 simple white frame houses, forming a community just a short walk from the back door of the law school building. With my young son and our dog, the university campus became our neighborhood. We easily made friends with our neighboring faculty members and their families who were also not from Mississippi. Our dog chased squirrels and romped nearby in the grove in front of the law school, an oval of enormous shade trees that we steadfastly avoided on football weekends when it transformed into the last stand of the Confederacy, with tailgating elevated into the bacchanalian absurdity of generator-powered chandeliers and tables laid with fine china, silver, and crystal glasses with of course, Confederate flags flying. From the windows of my law school office on many Saturdays, I heard the school band practicing Dixie in preparation for football weekends, prompting me to close my office door and crank up, fight the power on my boom box. I found myself humming, lift every voice and sing, also known as the Negro National Anthem, to my son at bedtime, as much a soothing lullaby to myself as to him. My journal from those days reports a recurring dream. White students come to my office in tears. When I ask why, they say with devastation, because the grades were just posted and the top 10 students are Black. Then Black students come to my office also crying. When I ask why, they say with joy, because the grades were just posted and the top 10 students are black. My journal continues and I managed to say something appropriate to both groups. This is the recurring dream of a black woman conscious of being the beneficiary of all the local black folk who dared make a way out of no way, making it possible for me to now engage their children's children sitting before me as students who have experienced the state's contempt for them their whole lives. It is the recurring dream of a black woman conscious of being out of place to white students who are accustomed to seeing black women in our rightful place in the kitchen or cleaning up their homes. Professor Derek Bell, the esteemed black Harvard law professor who authored the textbook, Race, Gender and the Law, mentored me by phone and email through the process of creating my seminar and managing both the students and myself throughout the semester. The seminar was our joint tribute to the hopes and dreams of the men and women of the Mississippi movement. The best advice he gave me was to have students submit one day prior to class a one-page think piece about each week's assigned readings. This proved to be an invaluable window into their hearts and minds as the semester progressed there was the classic Southern Belle beauty with luxurious blonde hair and perfectly applied makeup, while her think pieces reflected nuanced analysis and intellectual rigor. Her silence during seminar sessions puzzled me. I came to understand that she had been indoctrinated with the admonition to hide her intelligence and to conform to what was expected of a Delta girl. Her grandmother warned her that even going to law school 
meant that no man from the Delta would want to marry her. The unrelenting pressure to conform described by James Silver in his seminal work, Mississippi, The Closed Society, was determined to keep Delta girls in line while coercing black students to doubt their own value, their own humanity, and their own knowledge of what was true. I suspected that some of the students in the seminar were there simply because it gave them some needed hours to graduate and or fit in their class schedule. I suspected that my Bubba was planted there by the Federalist Society to ensure that I received a scathing end of semester teaching review. I suspected some of the students were there to satisfy their hunger for a professor who would look up as they entered the room and actually see them as students who belong there. I had that hunger when I was in law school and it wasn't satisfied until a black professor looked at me. I never knew to what extent any of these suspicions were accurate, but I learned that all of the students, black and white, stayed through the semester because they knew or suspected or had a feeling that something was not right about the culture in which they were raised with such an intense requirement of conformity. Their minds were trees that inherently resisted pleasing the bonsai gardeners. To support their resistance, I had to do more than make challenging reading assignments. Welcoming them into the opportunity to form an intellectual community, I invited them to share their thoughts in a space that would not always be comfortable. Comfortable is the unrelenting demand of a society that thrives upon the terror of conformity. Instead of asserting my responsibility as the professor to ensure a comfortable space, I assured them that our discussions would be uncomfortable and that we would nevertheless continue the discussion. And they stayed. The most memorable think piece came the week I assigned a group of articles by radical feminists. My Federalist Society student wrote in his think piece, this reading assignment of Catherine McKinnon and them offended every molecule in my body, along with other choice nuggets. He was reading the assignments and experiencing ideas that rubbed deep into the depths of his being. This was the moment a beginning I wanted for every student. Students also needed an experiential way to free themselves to think for themselves. Each student was required at the beginning of the semester to attach his or herself to a practicing attorney in the area who was engaged with a client on a matter concerning discrimination on the basis of race or sex or race and sex. The seminar paper upon which most of their grade would be based was to relate the assigned reading of the semester to the case in which they were involved. As the semester wore on, I could see the think pieces changing. Instead of paragraphs regurgitating like a school book report what had been read, I now saw questioning, criticism, disagreeing, wondering, glimmers of analysis. The conversations during our sessions became lively. We even laughed. The Delta Beauty dropped her demure persona and allowed her intellect to sashay out for all to see. I saw the emergence of the first black woman federal district court judge in the state. White students stopped being afraid of saying the wrong thing 
and Black students rejected complicity in their own degradation. Both began wrestling with closed society demons. He made his way to the front of the room. As he came to the podium, he planted his feet in a wide stance as if ready for a fight, shifted his hefty weight from side to side as he settled his papers, lifted his head and gazed slowly around the seminar table as if challenging each potential opponent. With the tone of a white Baptist preacher imparting truth to his congregation, he declared, y'all know that stuff Catherine McKinnon and them are talking about? Well, it's happening right here in Lafayette County. As he continued with his feminist critique of the injustices experienced by his client. And so, as Brown v. Board of Education, the 1954 U.S. Supreme Court decision noted the dangers of school segregation to the hearts and minds of little black children. There was for a moment in a law school in the heart of Dixie, a little seminar responding to the consequences of conformity imposed by the closed society upon the hearts and minds of both white and black law students. I love this piece. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Oh, Thank you. Wow, wow, wow. It just poured out of me. I was going to ask, when did it come in your mind to write it and how did it go? I've been thinking about it for a, a long time. The thought of it has been with me for a long time because people do ask me, what was it like? What was it like? And in my own mind, every time I'm asked that question, I go back to that moment. You know, I go back to that moment in that seminar. So I don't know what prompted me to, oh, I know. So that what prompted me to finally sit down with it was the prompt from her story. It was the, the month the theme was women who teach. Mm. And I thought, that would be me. Mm-hmm. I've got something to say about mm-hmm. that. And it just, and it, when I finally sat down with it, all of that just came together. Wow. Wow. Yeah. There are so many things, so many directions I want to take this, but as a fellow teacher, there is no greater experience than feeling that feeling of getting through to a student but of teaching them the tools, how to think for themselves. Yes. Oh, it was exhilarating. I mean, at that moment, you know, I remember sitting there in the seminar table, just trying not to boo. You know, I was just so, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I just, oh, I think I, I think I went home and, you know, celebrated with some bourbon or something. (laughs) That was a moment when I thought this was worth doing. This was worth doing. Mm -hmm. And what was so interesting to me from that teaching perspective is there are so many choices to make when one prepares for a semester and is plotting out the curriculum. And so one thing that you said that was huge, that changed a lot of the course of how things went were the think pieces. But then the other assignment that I loved was the requirement for the student to attach to a practicing attorney who is dealing with a case that involved discrimination. 
race, gender, et cetera. Yeah. Where did that idea come from and why was it so vital and pivotal for them to do that? That came from my experiences as a community organizer. When I graduated from college, I went to Chicago and um, learned about community organizing at the Industrial Areas Foundation. That was Saul Alinsky's creation. Mm -hmm. And I was in the last batch of organizers that he actually participated with in training before he died. Mm -hmm. And one of the key pillars of that kind of organizing is that people learn from their own experiences. People, you know, communities learn that they have power if they have an experience of having power, Mm. if they have an experience, if they have a success in getting a pothole fixed, if they have a success in getting a stop sign put up. And that's when the community gets it. It's not when you tell them they have power. Mm -hmm. And so it just traveled over into uh, teaching. That the mm-hmm. students had to have an, ex- an experience mm-hmm. of their own. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that experiential learning for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest topics that kept on being repeated in this piece was the idea of conformity, conformity. Yes. And so that moment at the end where the Southern Belle drops her demure where the Federalist Society guy is realizing things are happening right here. When they break out of the conformity, it was such a um, a victorious moment. But what made you focus on that thread of conformity as you were writing the piece? How did that come about? Um, that piece... That piece came to me as a realization of what the closed society really does to people, what this Southern culture does to both Black and white people in in terms of um, the harshness and the weight of having Black people conform to being in a certain place and white people also conforming. And I'll tell you, I experienced that in other institutions in which I've been engaged, including at the Ford Foundation, where I was a program officer. And there was there at what was at the time considered to be, you know, one of the most progressive liberal foundations in the country, also a culture of conformity. Mm -hmm. And I saw it and I thought, I recognize this. I recognize the the subtle power of conformity and how it stifles creativity and growth. And so I've started to see that as a major danger to a healthy and free society Mm. is our elements of the pressure to conform. And I do want to say this, as I read the name of the county, Lafayette County, that is not a mispronunciation. Other people may live in Lafayette, Louisiana, and other people may think there was a General Lafayette in the Revolutionary War. But we here in this county, we live in Lafayette County. (laughs) (laughs) And if you pronounce it any other way, we know you're not from here. 
love that. It's code. Yeah. About who's from here and who's not. Oh my goodness. Well, in the piece, you also talked about your grandfather and this leads me to think about the other piece that you have written that I want you to read a little bit from, which is called We Are Virginians, because it also has so much to do with place and history. And so I would love if you could just read a little bit of that. I will. I love this piece. And it will be in the summer issue of Southern Cultures Journal, published by the University of North Carolina. We are Virginians. And it opens with a quote from my friend, the artist Anne Strand. The land is not a space one looks at with the eyes alone. This is from her book, Sacred Altars, An Artful Journey to Enchantment. A farm on Peaks Knob in the Appalachia of Virginia has shaped for generations the descendants of Thomas Russell, my great-great-grandfather, born enslaved in 1834, who purchased 50 acres only 14 years after freedom. Over the years, subsequent generations grew Russell Farm to the 200 acres presided over by James Arthur Russell, his grandson, and my grandfather. When Thomas Russell brought his family, he came to a part of the Draper Mountain Range standing high above the surrounding area at 3,360 feet above sea level, the highest point in Pulaski County. He saw a lush mountain covered in forest of beech, oak, hickory, maple, chestnut, chokeberry, and birch, He saw dignity, independence, abundance, home and family. I hope he saw my fifth generation ponder what to do with these now 200 acres and the farmhouse with that big round table still in the dining room. I hope he saw me. This is my story about a particular family rising from the mountains of Appalachia and the meaning of the culture nurtured there by Thomas Russell and his descendants. Although I and my siblings grew up in Memphis, we are not of Memphis. We are Virginians, an identity instilled by my parents and forged during summers at Russell Farm. The sixth generation coming after us, all raised in and residing in cities, has seen only pictures and heard stories. Now we must make those stories our family day of the dead experience. If no one remembers, Russell Farm disappears, and all that's left is land and a farmhouse on the side of Peaks Knob. When Mama Russell, known to others as Elizabeth Hope Russell, died, my mother took me to Thomas Russell's old home place in the holler. We stood where the porch used to be. Her voice changed. Her gaze was into a distance through time I traveled by riding that voice. At first, all I could see were the fireplace chimneys standing like sentinels, still guarding all that had been. But this is the porch she stood on as a girl with her 22 rifle and shot between the ears the fox that had bothered her dog mate. I was standing next to that girl. I saw through her eyes. Her memories became my memories. And I understood Russell Farm as a space connecting me to all that had come before. The cherry orchard encircles a grassy clearing down by the log house and barn. 
It must wonder why people don't come anymore for the parties that used to happen under its branches. When my mother was a girl, the neighbors, black families who filled the mountain would walk along the trails carrying lanterns they hung from the branches, casting soft light upon the long tables filled with each woman's specialty. Mommy joined the musicians to play her mandolin and raise her clear soprano voice. While she later added Lena Horne and others to her playlist, at this time, Flat and Scruggs and other country musicians filled her playbook. These moments ended before I was born, but I picked those same cherry trees. And some quiet evenings when the lightning bugs came out at dusk, I'd find some way to visit the orchard and I could almost hear the music. Both my parents were born and raised in rural Virginia, my mother on Russell Farm, my father on a tobacco growing farm in Southside, Virginia, that his father managed but didn't own. We lived in Petersburg, Virginia, a college town, until I was about five years old when we moved to Memphis. I have often pondered that my parents managed to raise four children in the segregated South, in Memphis, and instill in us an unwavering sense of our own humanity, as did so many Black parents all over this country. Black parents faced unrelenting messages of inferiority blaring in daily life, from legal racial segregation buttressed by histories, social norms and practices intended to produce niggers. My parents showed us not to bow down. We went to the zoo as a family only once, so there would be no mystery because black people could only go on Thursday. The only movie my parents took us to see was the 10 Commandments because going to the movies meant buying a ticket at the side door and climbing up back stairs to the colored balcony. An exception was made for God. We were never allowed to board the yellow buses that rumbled through the neighborhood, picking up men, women, and children to pick or chop cotton in Mississippi and Arkansas. At Russell Farm, we lived a completely different life. With the help of my great uncle Randall, granddaddy Russell cut down timber on the land milled it and built with his own hands the existing four-bedroom, two-story farmhouse for his family. Every evening, we watched the blue ridges across the valley as if we were their keepers. The wide front porch with every inch of railing covered with pampered, riot of color petunias made space for grown folks sitting in rocking chairs and metal gliders while we grandchildren mostly squabbled over whose turn was it to ride Tony, the white wooden rocking horse granddaddy made just for us. This is where the family gathered during summer evenings after supper, watching dry lightning, God's dancers listening to his orchestra too far away for us to hear, play with the peaks across the valley. We paused for each train whistle as granddaddy calls out the train number and says with pride, right on time. That fierce whistle rolled up the mountain from the valley and spoke to me about places to go, adventures to be had and left whispering ever so softly of possibilities. To say that mama and daddy Russell were farmers is like saying an elephant is big. They bought only staples like coffee, tea, flour, sugar, and salt, 
at the general store owned by old Ost, who was always after Daddy Russell's lamb. Granddaddy says only sorry people eat store-bought food. There was a beginning of summer ritual. Lined up against the fence were sturdy walking sticks. An astonishing collection of wide-brimmed straw hats were on the porch. Each child, my sister Betty, my brother Charles, my sister Valeria, and I got to choose a hat and a stick for the summer. Then off we went, following Mama Russell like ducklings, past the little cornfield right there at the house, through the gate, past the smokehouse, down the path, winding by the weathered double-seater outhouse, then the chicken coop on the right side of the path, ducks and geese on the left, then the corn crib, veering right past the almighty pig pen, and then on to the cherry orchard, big vegetable garden, corn field and meadow. Occasionally, when the pigs were safely hemmed in, Granddaddy would allow me to walk alone through the trees and down to a place he had created simply for his pleasure. A small pond surrounded by the softest, greenest grass. Unlike everything on the farm except Mama Russell's flowers, it served no work purpose. For me, a magical place for fairies, wonder, and finding the occasional terrapin that I could bring up to the house and keep as a pet of the day, returning it before dark. I don't remember anyone ever going there with me. It was mine and granddaddy's. Oh my goodness. <laughs> this piece is so rich with sensory details. When I, I read it. Thanks to times. you. <laughs> oh gosh. Each time I read it, I was just completely transported. And there is a line that I, I emailed this to you that gave me such pause and I repeated it again and again. And it is, I understood Russell Farm as a space connecting me to all that came before. Yeah. <sighs> to be able to communicate that this space was not only a connection to generations of history, but also a gateway into connecting to family members, that, that scene of standing next to mom on the porch and imagining yeah. her as a girl. And at the same time, the other thing, when he bought the farm, could he imagine five generations later? And did he yeah. see me? Could he imagine me? There, there was so much past and present and future in this one space and so much history in oh. me. My goodness. Thank you. I'm so, I, that's, uh, I, it means so much to me that you uh, feel that, perceive that, because I am struggling as a writer to get onto the page, the feelings that I have. And so to accomplish that is the gold standard for me. I mean, that's really all I want, all I want. I mean, that's everything. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, you did it beautifully. And what inspired this piece? Oh, because my, my siblings and I are in conversation now about what to do with the farm. 
what to do with the farm because we are the last generation for whom it is we have living memories of it Mm. we have living we are the living stones Mm. so this came out of our family conversations Uh, we have not visited the farm together in I don't know how many years and we are planning this year to go together and there are now a group of um, of people in Pulaski it's the county of Pulaski but also the town of Pulaski who are trying to create a, a community space to understand the history of the county and so we've been involved in talking with them because we have these you know the, we have photographs and and these memories so it's been bubbling it's been bubbling up for about a year so we're now in our second year of this consciousness about what this farm means to us and what we want to do with it mm-hmm. and um when we first started talking about it, and I said to my son that one of the things we were considering was selling it, he said, mom, you can't do that. Mm. And I was surprised that it meant anything to him at all. And so it comes out of this reckoning mm. that we're doing as a family about its meaning to us and what we wanna do with it. Wow. It is so obvious in this piece that land is not just land. That was so evident. Yes. Uh, And when you think about this moment of that, he created a space that was not for work. There was a space that was not for work. And it was a, a place for the narrator, you of magic and fairies and wonder why do you think it was so important on this land to have a space like that? I think it was, um, it captured that part of his character and personality. He was such a hardworking man, but he was also very loving. He told great stories, but there was a part of him that also appreciated beauty. And this was his And Mama Russell had her flowers Mm -hmm. and his creation of beauty was this space, this pond with this beautiful, I don't even know, the grass was just so soft and green and it was just a a lovely, and the thing is you got to it by walking through, you know, this funky place where, you know, pigs ran around when they weren't in their pen, there were pig trails all through the trees and And then there it was, you know, it just appeared. Mm. It expressed a part of him. And he never said a word about why it was there or he just showed it to me. It's here and you can come here. Mm. It was wonderful. And thinking about you now, how do you think growing up with that land and with those memories and with that history, how do you think it affects you now? It affects me now as a, as a grandmother myself, mm. because I, I feel that so much of my never feeling lonely, feeling comfortable inside myself, feeling no need to conform, 
mm. comes from something they gave me and just loving me so completely and having this space in which my life was like that. My life on that farm was one of just wonder and beauty and I don't know, I, I, I'm kind of at a loss for words, but something about that settled in me mm. and is always with me. Mm. What a gift if every person could feel that amount of love and magic and wonder to feel good in themselves. And yes, therefore, and it wasn't not. anything, I didn't have to earn it. Oh. I didn't have to be a certain way. They just gave it to me. It was just grace. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think that's what we're all looking for. <laughs> yes. Yes. Unearned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What a world it would be if we all operated from a place like that. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yes. And it's coming out this summer. So yes. people can I'm be so on the lookout for it. Excellent. So I'm so glad that you generously agreed to read these two pieces and share them with us as well as your tiny love story, because there is something about hearing a story in the author's voice, having the author read it aloud and then talk about it. That is just fascinating to me and being able to really hear the insider scoop and be able to know what inspired it and where it came from and why it was so important. So this has been such a meaningful exchange to me and I'm so glad that you came on. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I feel so encouraged as a writer and to now think of myself as a writer, even as the rejections roll in, to feel inspired to, you know, keep going. Mm, and that's why, you know, I tell the group this a million times, the writers I know who are published the most are rejected the most. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, that's been my experience. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> well, I am so, so grateful to talk to you. I'm so glad that you came on. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nadine. I've enjoyed this. It's been fun. If you loved this conversation, feel free to take a screenshot and share it with your community. Tag me on Instagram. I'm at Nadine Kenny Johnstone on Instagram, and I'd love to see what you loved from this episode. What I love is working with my producer, Michelle Rado, who has her own podcast called Daring to Tell, which you should also check out. I can't wait to share a big, big, big announcement with you next week about some book news so you'll want to tune in then thank you for coming back week after week and remember everyone every heart has a story and every story has a heart see you next week Mm -hmm.